Say thank you for the great day we had yesterday, uh, last week um, here at Beach Haven. You committed yourself to evangelism, and there were some marvelous, there was some marvelous fruit to come from that. And I'm very, very, very grateful. Uh, we've got more than 70 folks committed to evangelism training, more than 60 to grow visitation, and Beach Haven last week committed to share the gospel more than a hundred times every week in our community. And I am thrilled uh, with, uh, the, with the outpouring and the commitment uh, there. Some of you still need to get in your cards. You've told me that's fine. Please do so when you can. But we will begin our training this afternoon at 3 and do a makeup training on the uh, 24th. We have the Lord's Supper coming up uh, August the 24th, Sunday morning, August the 24th. And last time we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I tried to prepare you Godward. And I think you've done well with that, and I'm very grateful. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit and begin to prepare us uh, horizontally with one another, manward and womanward, familyward and relationshipward. So for the next few Sundays, I'm going to be doing a series of messages on qualities of great Christian relationships. And Ephesians chapter 4 will help us. And this morning, we're going to talk about worthy disagreements. And next Sunday, we'll talk about uh, managing anger. And then the following Sunday, we will talk about granting forgiveness. And uh, we'll see where we are after uh, that. The question is not if disagreement ever arises, but when it arises, what do we uh, do? Uh, none other than Ruth and Billy Graham have admitted they've had some challenges even in their own relationship. One time, Ruth was being uh, interviewed for a book that she had written on her and Billy's marriage. And a reporter asked her during the uh, book tour and the uh, interview, if she had ever thought of divorcing Billy. And she said, divorce? Never. Murder? Many times. <laughs> In any case, that's what we have with um, Ruth Graham. It reminds me of the fella who saw an advertisement in the paper for the Lonely Hearts Club. And he uh, was instructed in that article to send in a picture and an application. And he did it a few weeks later. A response came back said, thank you for your application, but we aren't that lonely. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's oftentimes how relationships go. Uh, whether it's in marriage or work or sometimes even amongst ourselves, the question is not if disagreement arises, but when it arises, what in the world are we to do? Well, here in Ephesians chapter 4, what we find here is that God has elevated the expectations of his followers, of Christ's followers, in dealing with disagreement. In other words, we are to be the most capable people on the planet handling disagreement. In other words, we should be the best problem solvers in relationships in the world. And, and not only should we be, but good news, we can be the best problem solvers anywhere because of the marvelous and abundant resources that we have available uh, to us. And so the apostle here indicates that with the word worthy. Now look with me in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness or, or humility and gentleness, with long-suffering or, or patience, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Now, what Paul is doing here is he's making a shift in the book of Ephesians from the doctrinal to the practical. And he prefaces this text here, verses 1 through 3, with some enormous good news in the previous three chapters. And he's talking here about the calling of God to salvation, to know Christ as Savior. In fact, that word is really used three times in verse 1. You can't see it in the English translations, but to read literally in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, call you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So it's emphatic here. The first three chapters are about the doctrine of salvation and the great blessings that accumulate to those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. And on that basis, now that you have the resources and the right relationship with God, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, who as a prisoner has more reason to complain than anyone else on the planet, urge you to walk worthy of the Lord. And then he gets into how to deal with disagreement. Now I want you to look back at chapter 1, verse 3, at the great resources that have been given to those who know Christ, and then we'll look at chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Here's the marvelous resource. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, God is not waiting to bless you and you're not looking forward to a blessing, though they may come. He is stating emphatically here that you have already been blessed now that you've come to Christ. And he spends the balance of the first chapter explaining that. And so you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. But then we go on to the end of chapter 3 that picks up on some of the same themes. Paul cannot help but shout in chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, after saying all of these things and explaining blessings that come with salvation, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, and we belong to a God who can do more than we ever dreamed or imagined. Don't you think he can handle a few disagreements in your marriage, with your children, with others? Well, that's the basis of this. And so God is not merely the kind of God that piles expectation upon expectation and leaves you frustrated that you cannot meet it. God instead is the kind of God that provides the resource first and says, now appropriate it and now use it. That's what this God happens to, happens to do. Now this all revolves around the word worthy. And that is, God has some high expectations for his people because he has given abundant and precious resources to his people. And if they have the resources, then indeed they are very capable, and it's reasonable to expect they will act up according, not act up, but act according to the resources that God has given them. And so it is very, very inappropriate for Christian people to disagree in a destructive, carnal, worldly manner. May I say it again? It is very unworthy and scandalous for Christian people to disagree in a scandalous, unworthy, worldly manner. The number one turnoff to the world is how Christian people disagree with one another. Yes. 
And churches all over need to call a ceasefire in marriages and family and amongst one another. We don't need any more of that. And so the Apostle Paul says, there is enormous resource, but I've got this high expectation here. And that we would appropriate these kinds of things and, and really handle these kinds of things the way that Jesus handled them in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, and amongst one another. And so he elevates the expectation here. And so the, the whole point here is, it is very possible to act in a worthy manner. Now the word worthy indicates there's been some elevation here. When you come to Christ, you come out of the mire, and he elevates you to royal status. We can unpack all of that later, but uh, if you'll read Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll find that's the case. You get elevated enormously, outrageously, joyfully, by grace whenever you come to Christ as Savior. And so God is very reasonable to expect these things from you, and it is confusing when Christian people don't handle these challenges in a worthy manner. It's like going into a restaurant somewhere and hearing karaoke. Somebody singing a song by the Bee Gees and you look over to the microphone and there's A.B. Sawyer. That just wouldn't mix or match. It just wouldn't mix. It's confusing. Or more seriously, let's imagine you're back in 1932 when the Charles Lindbergh baby was, uh, was uh, kidnapped and was found dead. Someone was tried and convicted for that, but let's say that evidence unfolded and we found that Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the campaign trail was responsible for that. Well, we don't expect that of a president. That's why the nation is so terribly disappointed with Richard Nixon, and the nation still hasn't gotten over that. We don't expect that from that worthy office. So you have been elevated to a higher office, and God has these reasonable expectations, but he doesn't mean to frustrate you. He has provided enormous and great resources. Every spiritual blessing and the walk with the God who can do more than we ask or think. So the good news is, is that you can handle disagreement in a worthy manner, whether it's in your marriage or your family, in your community, or wherever it happens to be. Well, how can I do that? Well, there are several qualities that are found here. Number one, humility. Humility. Uh, verse uh, number two calls it lowliness. Some of your translations say humility, and that, that is wise to consider it that way. In the Greek Old Testament that they used in the first century, sometimes this word humility is translated sick. Sometimes it's translated impoverished. And the person who has humility says, you know, my view on this may be sick. It may be impoverished. Anytime there's a disagreement, we, we consider that. Uh, and and the, in fact, the person who uh, has humility approaches these things in several ways. The, the person who has humility wants to be taught. And so the person who has humility says, when you and I disagree, I will stay open to new information that you want to teach me. I'm not going to assume that I have all the facts because I'm not omniscient. I'm not God. And so that person is always open to new teaching. In other words, we don't cut off our spouse when our spouse is trying to fill us in on more information. We don't do that. We don't do that to others. We're not so rude to interrupt other people because we want to cut them off. That's unworthy. We have humility instead, and so when you and I disagree, we stay open to new information that you want to teach me. There's another item here as well, and that is correction. Uh, the person with humility says, when you and I disagree, I hope you will correct me where you think that I'm wrong. In other words, we don't have the attitude, you can't teach me anything, don't 
correct me, don't embarrass me, nothing like that. That's unworthy of a Christian. The person that has humility comes and says, you know, I might be wrong about this. Would you help me understand um, the, what has really taken place here? And then responsibility. The person with humility says, when you and I disagree, I will seriously consider that I am at fault. That's what we do when we're humble. Now, why in the world should I ever consider being humble? Why? Well, let me mention a few things. One, we have been wrong in the past. And it's very likely we will be wrong in the future. Especially where our emotions and our image is involved. That's one reason. A second reason, uh, and that's past history, a second reason is present depravity. I am essentially, I am liable to twist and embellish my image in order to make myself look good. In other words, I'm willing to cover up myself. In other words, I have within me a lying politician and a press secretary whose number one interest is me. Now, beloved, we don't like that from Washington, and it's even worse in our homes, families, and churches. I am my own politician. I am my own press secretary. We, we like to make ourselves look good. That's part of the sinful human condition outside Christ and the Holy Spirit. Then, then uh, the, um, uh, there's a future reason as well. Future judgment. Whenever we're not humble, we usually indicate that with our words. And Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37, Every careless word a man shall speak, he shall render account for it in the day of judgment. A, a useless word, a uh, vain word that Jesus talks about there in Matthew 12, 37, is the kind of word that does not produce righteousness. It's the kind of word that degrades the conversation, that degrades exploration of the truth. And so whenever we speak words that do not produce righteousness, they don't advance the cause of Christ, they don't advance the cause of truth or purity, Jesus warns and threatens we shall render account for it on the day of judgment. And so, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. That's why today, at the end of the message, we're going to give you the opportunity to come to Christ because quite frankly, in just this one quality is enough to sink every human being and make that person needy of Jesus Christ and his salvation. So after the sermon, we're going to invite you to give your life to Christ. Now, this is what God expects of those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and those who belong to a God who can do more than we ask or think. Well, there, there's a second quality, and that happens to be gentleness. Ancient writers would oftentimes use this word gentleness for a domesticated animal, for a tamed animal. Not merely husbands, but real animals and beasts of the of the earth. Gentleness. Gentleness. Um, every person in the world is someone we should view as having a sign around their neck that says, fragile, handle with care. We should see every person that way. Now, we're good at seeing ourselves that way. And we want everyone else to handle us with care and gentleness. But when it comes to other people with whom we disagree, too often that's not the case. But every person is fragile. Every person is breakable. And for that reason, when we're gentle, the person with the gentleness of Christ sees every person with a sign around his or her neck that says, fragile, handle with care. Now, the person with uh, gentleness says this. When we disagree, 
I will be very careful how I speak, even if I'm right. Now, we all know people who speak, and they're sure they're right, and oftentimes there are, but they are, one, as one author said, repulsively right. Even when we're right, we have to be gentle. And the likelihood is, somewhere along the way, we're wrong. And so we especially need to be gentle. Fellas, I'll just remind you that women who've gained a few pounds live longer than men who mention it. You need to be gentle. <laughs> now here's some reasons that we need to be gentle. One, people listen to a gentle person better than they do to a harsh person. Whenever you're harsh and ugly and use provocative language, two things are going on. They have to split themselves. On one hand, they have to listen to your words and they're trying to calculate what you're saying on one hand, but they can't give themselves entirely to your message because you're being so harsh and they're trying to figure out if you're going to physically hurt them. Or they're giving themselves part of their mind to the thought that, um, wow, they're really being harsh. This is a shock. And so they're not really able to listen to you when you're that harsh. People that are gentle are heard better than those that are harsh. And so if, if you're not gentle and you're using provocative, ugly language and making judgments, then you're really undermining your case. And what's happening is that you're really building a second problem. Gentleness means we are very careful how we speak, even if we're right. So the person that is gentle is heard better than the person that's harsh. Then, harsh words undermine our credibility. Do you enjoy listening to anyone that's harsh? Not really. We really don't. In order to have credibility with other people, we have to be gentle. And then, Jesus Christ was gentle. And Jesus Christ was always right. Has that ever occurred to you? You have to understand, when I preach messages like this, I start on Sunday afternoon. This particular message I had just about completed Monday night. And I, I've had to live with it all week long. Yeah. And so it has really, really afflicted me and persecuted me into anxiety all week long. And that's what the Scripture will do. Now, I will tell you that conviction is a sign of spiritual growth and the thing that keeps occurring to me is that if anyone had any right or business being harsh, it was Jesus, and yet Jesus was meek and mild. It reminds me of the Christian songwriter Ken Metema. Ken Metema was born blind, but his parents didn't let his uh, handicap become an excuse. And so Ken learned to ride a bicycle and learned how to ski blind. And learned all of this, and he learned to accommodate himself real well. But one day he went to college, and early on in his freshman year, he was walking along somewhere, and he ran into another blind student. And that blind student, when Ken bumped into him because he couldn't see him, shouted at him and said, Hey, be careful, can't you tell I'm blind? And Ken said, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. And walked on. I have to admit, that's not what I would have done. Not what I would have done at all. But Ken was gentle. 
Hey, this is a reasonable expectation from those who've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and belong to a God who can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. But there's a third quality besides gentleness and humility, and that is patience. Uh, Verse number two calls it long-suffering. That really is a better translation than the word patience. Uh, Because the word long-suffering or patience comes from the Greek word macrothumia. Now you may hear some English words out of there. Macro, large, or long. Thumia, thermal, heat. The person with patience takes a long time to get heated up. That's what the person with patience does. It takes a long time. In other words, they have a very long fuse before they are heated up and before they explode. The person with patience says, when you and I disagree and you're wrong, I will give you the time to grow and make things right. Things don't happen quickly. Changes don't happen quickly. We can take some time with this. I'm not going to panic. I will be patient with you. I can live without a solution right now, but I can't live without you and I don't want to. And I don't want to wound you. Here's some reasons to be patient. One, quick judgments are usually the most negative and the most ill-advised. I've discovered that about my quick judgments. They really are. And usually, whenever we see something with which we disagree, we often conclude the worst possible conclusion. Not the best. No matter what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says. We end up concluding the worst possible scenario. In other words, when we disagree with someone, instantly the flesh gets busy and we begin to turn people into monsters. And we no longer give them the benefit of the doubt, no matter what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 happens to say. And so quick judgments are usually the most negative of all the possibilities, and they are usually ill-advised. So we we make a negative and quick judgment, well that becomes another problem and we have to untangle that before we get to the original problem and within 30 seconds everything's a mess. You see. No wonder some people don't want what we've got. One preacher said the reason some Christians don't want to, or some people in the world don't want to become a Christian is that number one they don't know a Christian to tell them, but number two they do know a Christian. So the reality is usually not nearly as bad as we first assume, but if we jump quickly to conclusions, we don't learn that. And then we get proud and we just defend our position, which is indefensible, and make ourselves to be foolish. Usually I have found that when I take some time to listen, when I'm corrected, when I get more information, the reality is not nearly as bad as I first assumed. I've got to tell you, I thank you, I thank God for the few times that I've done that. It has prevented me from a terrible, terrible mess. So quick judgments are usually the most negative and ill-advised. The reality is usually not as bad. And then people need time to gather their thoughts. And so if you give them some time, they'll do that. They, they weren't expecting you to disagree with them. They weren't. They didn't anticipate that. They don't have strategy meetings over how they're going to think through and meet your disagreements. They don't anticipate these things. And if you give them some time, they'll figure out how to to, um, talk. Now, if you're in a relationship where there's no patience there and it's boiling constantly with disagreement, you might want to call a timeout and say, look, for the next month, we're not going to disagree about anything. Well, I won't get done what I want done. Well, how's it working for you now? You can afford to call a timeout. 
if not for a month, then maybe for a week or two. And let people gather their thoughts, let some positive sentiment and warmth percolate through the relationship, and that can be a great big help. Now, a final element of patience, why we need to be patient, is God is patient towards us. In fact, that's why he has not dispatched the Lord Jesus to come take over the earth. He's waiting for all those who will be saved to be saved. And that's precisely what God does. So, God is himself patient, and if patience is good enough for God, it's good enough for us. And that's a reasonable expectation for those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and those who belong to the God who can do more than we ever ask or think. Well, there's, there's a, fifth, a fourth quality, and that happens to be forbearance. Verse number three, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse two, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This is restraint when we are provoked and we do it because we love. We may not have been loved when we were provoked, but we're going to love in return, and we're going to demonstrate forbearance. Uh, The person with forbearance says, when you and I disagree, I will work in a loving way until we solve the problem. All of my interaction with you will be marked and bathed and marinated in love. There's some reasons to forbear and to give your time to people. And, and to give them the time necessary to change. One happens to be this. It is difficult to change. It is. The human soul and the human mind conspire with one another against us 24-7. And even the most sincere people find it hard to change. Some difficulties take years to fix, even with the most sincere people. They do. It's difficult to change. Then, relationship difficulties are stubborn, but most of them are temporary. One day, the problem will be solved, if you'll hold on. Most relationship difficulties are stubborn, I'll admit, but most of them are temporary. Things are not static, they're dynamic, they're constantly changing. And then, I need to remind you, there's someone tolerating you. And now it's time to return it. And then, this is oftentimes how God works. God does some of his greatest work through long-term aggravation. Now, that's not you aggravating someone else. That's you being on the receiving end of aggravation. In fact, I want you to think of two warped boards. Okay, hang on just a minute. I have two boards here that have been weathered. Uh, they're, they're still wet. They have, I think, sat next to an outbuilding. And because of the weather and the wet, they've been warped. The way to straighten these boards would be to put them together like I have here. And to put two heavy-duty clamps on the end and clamp them down and hold them down for a good long time and put pressure on both ends. Eventually, these boards would straighten up. They would greatly improve. Well, this is what God does in marriage. God takes two sinners, two warped boards, and he puts them together. And then he puts pressure on the end for years. 
to straighten them out. God does this with families. He brings children into a family, mixes them with two other warped boards, and then, as in my family, you've got six warped boards, (laughs) and one warped more than the other, they say, and puts pressure on both, on all the ends to straighten them out. God does this in churches. God does this in providential relationships. The truth is, is that it could very well be that much of the aggravation you experience in relationship is permitted by providence because God is trying to grow you. And the most important thing is not to eliminate all of your aggravation. It may be that to the Lord, the most important thing is for you to grow and to change and to develop and become more like Jesus. That might be why there's so much aggravation in life. This is how God works. And so forbearing through that gives God more time to make changes in your own life. Well, this is very reasonable for those who've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and belong to the God who can do above all that we ask or think. Well, there's one final quality mentioned here in verse 3, and that is zeal. I've translated this zeal. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, being zealous, zealously applying myself to unity with the Holy Spirit, which comes from bonding together with one another in peace. When marriages and families and churches are at peace, we invite the Holy Spirit, and he creates an intense unity, is what he does. Now, the the person with this kind of zeal says, when we disagree, I will be zealous to guard our unity with the Holy Spirit, and this unity will trump my opinions, my feelings, my thoughts, my agenda, my everything else. It doesn't trump truth in the scripture, of course, but it will trump my personal thoughts and feelings and agenda. I, I remember one time, in one church I served, we had a decorating committee that was putting together a plan for redecorating our church and they presented it to the church, asked questions, had answers, and it it was a wonderful, wonderful effort. But in the middle of it, uh, or during a question and answer time, uh, one of my members, uh, the chairman of my finance committee and one of my deacons got up and disagreed with it. And I didn't see that coming from anywhere at all. He hadn't told me. He really surprised me. Now, most of my deacons through the years would alert me to these kinds of things, and they're very open and very transparent and really helped me with my own leadership. And so I was able to navigate things on the basis of their thinking and their insights. Oh, it was wonderful. And I had a wonderful relationship with Billy. But he surprised me on that day by vocally, publicly disagreeing with the plan to do so. Well, we took a vote that day, and the vote was 60-40 in favor. Now for politicians that's a great banner day. In churches no pastor ever wants that at all. I I mean that's not what you want at all. And so we we ended up taking that vote and it was remarkable to me what happened right after that vote. I saw Billy step out of his pew and march down the aisle and he came to the chairwoman of this decorating committee, Danielle Strickland. And with a voice loud enough for everyone to hear in the sanctuary, real pleasant, not obnoxious, he said, congratulations, Miss Chairwoman, the finance committee and I 
will get together and come up with the plan quickly to finance this. And he said it loud enough for everyone to hear, and I knew what Billy was doing. He was signifying to the other 40% that voted against this thing, we are unified and we're moving forward. I think it's because his wife ribbed him and said, we're getting on board with this. But in any case, that's what Billy did. And you know what happened? The next day, a check for $1,000 showed up from Billy, marked for that redecoration project. That's the kind of man Billy was. He quickly acted to unify everybody. Quite frankly, folks, I missed that man. I did his funeral. And after seeing Jesus and a few family members, I'm going to go on a hunt for him because he made our day that day. And he set a marvelous example with his zeal for unity. That's why Billy was marked with the power of the Holy Spirit all of his life. Why should we have that kind of zeal? Well, a zeal for unity... There's several reasons. One, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's enough division in our world already. I'm not up for any more. The quota for division in the United States has been filled, and Christians don't need to add to it, do they? Not in our marriage, family, any place else. There's a second reason as well. And that is, the way God has designed the church is that God has designed the church to preview for the world what the kingdom will be like when Jesus comes back. That's what he's done. Christians in churches preview the unity of the kingdom of Christ where there will be no division at all. And so if our world wants to know what the kingdom will look like under Jesus Christ, they should be able to step in and watch our marriages and our families, and our churches. Anywhere the name of Christ is named, they should be able to see a picture or a sample of the future kingdom of Christ. And then, one final reason. The fellowship and the unity of the Holy Spirit is a very fragile thing. The Holy Spirit is quick to be grieved and quenched. It's like romance in a marriage. It's a very fragile thing, necessary thing, but it's very fragile. And it takes constant work and labor and sweetness and kindness and forgiveness to build it in a marriage. So the unity of the Holy Spirit is a fragile thing that is achieved only in holiness and love. And when the Holy Spirit is not satisfied, He does not share His power or His insight. And then we struggle and we decline in our relationships. Well, I've got good news for you. These are reasonable expectations from those who've been blessed with every spiritual blessing and are the children of Him who can do above all that we ask or think. God is not being unreasonable at all. Not at all. And I, I know perhaps you have been much like me as I have looked at this text. And that is, as I read verses 1 through 3, I cannot help but to think of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ exhibited these qualities faithfully, constantly, perfectly. And so Jesus Christ is worthy of repentance and faith in Him from you, from me, today. There is no one who has ever acted or felt or thought or related like Jesus. And that's the good news about knowing Christ. 
So often in relationship difficulties, too much time is spent, is, is spent on trying to figure out who to blame. Well, when you have a relationship difficulty with Christ, that's not a question, is it? Is it? Whenever there's a relationship difficulty with Jesus Christ, it's obvious there's one partner in that relationship who is not to blame. And that's good news because when you know who's responsible for the problem, then the change can happen. So that is why we zealously urge you to give your heart and life to Christ today and abandon everything for Him and embrace the cross because Jesus Christ is worthy and He is trustworthy because He marvelously demonstrates these qualities. Father, we do pray that friends today would embrace all there is of Jesus Christ and yield to Him. We pray the power of the Holy Spirit would work in such a way to turn and convert those that need to believe today. And for the rest of us, Father, please teach us to appropriate. Please teach us to appropriate every spiritual blessing and our walk with the God who can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And when we do, here at Beach Haven, we want to offer you all the help you need to come to Christ. We want you to know our Lord. The Spirit wants you to know. The Church Universal wants you to know. All the saints are cheering for you to come and give yourself to Christ. And what we do here is that we'll sing a song. And just as soon as we start singing, why don't you step out from where you are and there will be a staff member here in the front to meet you. And that staff member would love to help meet your spiritual need and give you the guidance that you need. Why don't you come today? Some of you have received Christ and you need to follow Him in baptism and say yes to Him and be obedient. And take that first step of obedience. Why don't you come? Others of you have prayed about where God wants you to serve and Beach Haven's the place. Why don't you come? There may be other needs, but right now I'm going to ask you to quickly stand and I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Father, would you do a neat work in hearts and lives today? And I pray that when we dismiss from here today, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer. Make it so in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You come.